Amen, amen. We like that. We like that stuff. That's good. Thank you. Thank you ever so much. Um, let's see. Oh, Shirley, did you bring up about the card? Oh, we might want to mention that again. And the reason we're doing that is because, uh, and I didn't, I honestly, I did not know, Joy doesn't tell me anything. She doesn't. She's, she's just very discreet. I didn't know for months and months that my mom had been sending us a check here at this church. And then one time I found out somehow. Um, it might have been that I just found the mail on her desk and saw this letter from my mom. I think it's, or an envelope, I should say, from my mom. That's, I think that's what it was, and that really got my curiosity up. And, then, and I just thought, well, at that time, I thought it was a one-time thing. I didn't know that she'd been doing this for a long time. So that was encouraging to me. I didn't know a thing about it. So I thought, well, that might be a good encouragement to her. We'll send her a, a little card just saying thank you and for sharing in, in our ministry here. So that was a blessing to me. So it's out there on that little podium. If you want to sign it, we'd certainly appreciate that. And we'll send it on to Tippy Canoe, Indiana. Tippy Canoe. Boy, it's quite a place. Just a mile down the road from my mom's house, there's a little park there called Potawatomi Park. Of course, it's a, it was an Indian, big Indian grounds all through that area there. And um, it, it was quite a fascinating place. I just thought it was pretty neat. And then, um, I mean, there's, I don't know if I ever mentioned this. Well, when we were kids... I didn't, I was really young, probably, I couldn't have been more than about 12, I think. And this neighbor kid, his grandfather, they, he lived back, had a farm that backed up on the river. Where, and he knew where these Indian burial grounds were. Well, he got, the older, his older grandson, which was our neighbor, got the idea that he wanted to go dig up some of them graves and see if he could find some artifacts or something. So we went back. So his granddad took us in his old pickup. Now, this guy, I mean, he was a tobacco-chewing fellow. I mean, literally, he may, anyone from the south, but he, tobacco running down the side of the truck, you know, we joked about that. And he drove us back there. Um, the, the, um, his, three, his three grandsons and my brother and I, so there was five of us. And we drove back there, and we started digging and I mean, it, w it wasn't even five minutes. <laughs> and the youngest of us, we all got scared and said, we ain't going to stay here. We gave up. And, of course, when we left, <laughs> then the oldest one, he said, well, I ain't staying here by myself. So he, he left, too. And we all, I mean, we weren't back there ten minutes. And his grandfather had to take us all back to the house. And I never got interested in that again after that. I didn't much care for that whole idea. Okay, so much for that story. Jack's back now so we can get started. Okay, we're in 1 Timothy still, chapter 2. <coughs> 1 
First Timothy chapter 2, and Paul, of course, has been instructing Timothy about some things he needed to take care of. And one of those was instructing the elders, those in charge, concerning their doctrine and their teaching, that they would keep it true and straight and not step aside or miss the mark or get off track regarding what their focus was. You know, and, and really that's, I mean, a, it is just of the utmost importance when we understand the gospel and we know what it is we are receiving when we receive Christ's gospel, his good news about his coming kingdom, and we become willing disciples and followers of him, then it behooves us to be very, very careful that we follow the rules, as it were, that we walk in obedience according to this gospel that we're professing. And, of course, this gets very detailed sometimes with Paul and, of course, with Peter and James. I mean, they give us some very uh, detailed specifics about the Christian life, about how to work to conduct ourselves, how our lives should be lived out on a daily basis. I, I, I often, when I think about those things, I just ask myself, you know, in my own mind, as I try to picture a, or the, ideal Christian believer in the first century and move that one over here into our context today, you know, what would that person look like? How would they conduct themselves uh, in, a, in a society such as ours? Which, by the way, just because we have a lot of technology today, it's not really any different than it was in the first century. That's what really boils down to and what you find out. And so Paul moves on to this matter of prayer. And as we ended that section in verse uh, 8, we saw that he, well, back in verse uh, 4, he said he would have all men, anthropos, mankind, that is, all, all humans to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then we saw then that in verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. But then in verse 8, he switched to, I will therefore that men, and that was the word aner, which means a man, males. And he was speaking here specifically that in this matter of prayer, when he says, I urge that... <coughs> First of all, supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving thanks be made for all men, that he was speaking about males in particular. They are to take a proper role in public worship by leading in prayer. And so men shouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed or afraid to lead in public prayer when, when God's people are assembled together. It's an important thing. Well, then when you come to verse 9, he says, in like manner also. So you would ask yourself then the question, in like manner, in like manner of what? Well, as we go through this passage, I believe that we'll find the answer here. 
But suffice it to say that he's simply saying, in like manner as men assume their proper role in this regard with prayer, so women should assume their proper role or place in public worship. And so now he's going to enter into that whole idea and describe how that should be. First of all, he says that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Adorn themselves. There are are a lot of words used to translate this whole idea of adorn. Basically, it comes from this familiar word we've talked about before, cosmos. I was supposed to ask Karen if I could pick on her, but I'm just going to to have to do it anyway without asking Karen. (laughs) But you know where the word cosmetology comes from? Because she's a cosmetologist. It comes from this Greek word, cosmos, translated adorn. And it has to do, the word cosmos means an orderly array of something, an orderly fashion of something. When it's translated the world in the New Testament, and you remember there are three words translated world in the New Testament. One of them is this word cosmos. And when it talks about the world out there, the cosmos, it's talking about the orderly arrangement of the affairs of mankind as life is conducted on this planet on a day-to-day basis. It's just the things that are going on, whether it's in the world of finance, politics, entertainment, government, culture, you know, literature, whatever it is. In all these facets of life, it's talking about those, that ordered way uh, that men view the life from a secular standpoint is the way we would express it and how life is conducted. Here, he's giving a very specific uh, application here to women adorning themselves or arraying themselves. And he calls it here to do so in modest apparel. Now, <clears throat> this, this adorning, it's used in several ways, and I want us to look up a few of those. I want us to go to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 12. Because to, uh, to adorn, you know, it carries along a couple ideas when you talk, talk about putting something in order, but it, it can be used in the sense of decorating. Matthew chapter 12, verse 44. And let's see how it's used here. Talking about the man with the unclean spirits in verse 43. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. But the literal way you would see this would be put in order, not garnished. Now, we use the word garnish in the same kind of a sense. 
when you add garnishment to some food you're preparing, you know, you might put a sprig of parsley on it. You might add a little paprika or something, some color, and you make it presentable. So a lot of times as a good cook, instead of just making food taste good, you want to make it look good also, attractive to the eye. So you garnish it. You array it or put it in order. Now turn over to um, Matthew. Just turn over a few pages to the right to chapter 25. And look over there at verse 7. <clears throat> so this is, this is a usage here of the sense of putting it in order. Garnished it. Talking about the person. Here with the ten virgins, we find in verse 7, he says, Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. The word trimmed is our same word again. So they, in other words, they put their lamps in order. And it was just a very simple act. It trimmed it off so it would burn better, more brightly, and last a little longer. Now, look back to the left, just a couple chapters to 23. And verse 29. <coughs> Here, Jesus is upbraiding the Pharisees and the scribes and so on. And he says in verse 29, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets... And garnish the sepulchers of the righteous. And of course, our word garnish is the word we're looking at. But he's talking about you decorate them. You go out and you honor the prophets. You honor the righteous. And he's calling them hypocrites because they were not themselves righteous. The scribes and the Pharisees. So they were hypocrites. But the simple use of the word here is just simply that they were decorating these, these tombs. Luke chapter 21. I think this might be a similar, a similar usage here. I don't remember now. Luke 21 verse... Well, no, well, it is a similar use, but it's applying to the temple here. And Luke 21 verse <coughs> 5... He says, some spake of the temple how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. So the temple itself was adorned with gifts, decorated, garnished with these things. So you get the idea, okay? To decorate, garnish, adorn, array yourself. And back here in Timothy then, when he's talking about women in public worship, that is, when God's people come together and assemble, he says that they adorn themselves in modest apparel. Well, this requires us again to look at the word modest. What does modest apparel mean? Well, this word is a variation of the same word translated adorn. It comes from the word cosmos. So it's talking about this orderly arrangement again. Now this word is, I, try, I 
counted at least 12 different ways it was translated. So I'm going to read a few of them to you so you catch the idea. It's translated as orderly, becoming, sensible, modest, comely, decent, proper, respectable, and seemly. Now that's a lot of different words. But if you take them all collectively, I hope you would get the general idea of what he's telling us here. The way in which they should be dressed, a woman in public worship. The best word I found that I think fits the whole thing is decorous. Of course, I had to look it up to be sure I understood. Now, you know, you get a sense of words when you read context a lot and you just... You don't take time to look them up. You just keep on reading. But I want to look it up to be sure that I had the sense. Now, here's what decorous means. It means marked by propriety and good taste. That was one dictionary definition. Another one, that was Merriam-Webster. Another one says, characterized by dignified propriety in conduct, manners, appearance, character. So it applies to appearance, but it applies to other things as well, inward character. And that word in secular literature, in Greek literature, was used that way. Some think the emphasis here is on character or deportment, how we conduct ourselves. And then a lot of people just took the easy road and said, well, both. <laughs> but I think he's being very specific here. Um, about what he's talking about, modest apparel, because the word apparel does have to do with clothing, garments. As a matter of fact, that word itself is an interesting word. It has to do with a, a, the, the literalness of the word means to let down. And it carries with it the idea, of course, if you think back to the first century and the fact that Gowns or robes were worn, or togas, if you use the Greek word. Uh, so to let it down. In other words, it was something that was um, had length to it. It was let down. It was apparel, clothing. And so they were to adorn themselves, that is, then, with decent, sensible, proprietary, or pro appropriate, I should say, not proprietary, uh, uh, kind of apparel something that in other words that would be fitting we would use the word to decorum when people say well <clears throat> it just doesn't look right in church then that's what they're talking about they're talking about this word here modest apparel proper decorum that which is proper for the setting in which you're in and so when God's people assemble together in church, then there's a right way to dress and there's a wrong way to dress. And then he says, with shamefacedness, or in actuality, the actual original correct English word here from the 1611 was shamefastness, to be held fast by shame. It would be the same correlation would be if we said somebody was bedfast, 
we mean they're held fast in bed by something. And so to be shame fast means you are held fast by shame. Now, of course, it doesn't mean shame necessarily in the negative sense here, but shame in the positive sense in that, <clears throat> in that you give due regard or respect for someone who is in a superior position. So in other words, it would be like a younger to an elder. A person who is shamefast in that sense is somebody who shows due respect for someone who's in a different position than they are as a younger to an elder. Or, as he says here, in a church setting, in the assembly of God's people. And then he goes on to say, with sobriety. Sobriety is pretty much just like we understand the word to mean. Sober-mindedness. Some would say with discreetness. It's, you know, it's the same word used up in verse 15 that we'll be looking at in a moment where he says they are to conduct themselves with holiness and sobriety or discreetness. But notice what it says then. That's the positive side. Now look at the negative side. Not with braided hair or braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Expensive clothing would be the easy translation for us. So what was Paul trying to point out? Well, there is a sense when we come together as God's people, there's not, this is not a place to try to establish ourselves or set ourselves apart with what God has given us in the sense of money. And, but that's exactly what was happening in Paul's day, especially uh, in the Greek cities. And so they braided their hair, and in the braiding of their hair, they wove in gold strands and pearls. That's what he's talking about here. And, and, and wore expensive clothing. Now, of course, you know in the New Testament church, there was everything that you could possibly imagine in terms of people from society. Slaves and slave owners worshiped together. You remember the little scene with Onesimus and his owner? In other words, it was very common. Remember the, also 1 Corinthians 11 and dealing with the um, issue of communion and those that would come and they had plenty of food and they would br come bring it and then they'd go ahead and eat and leave the poorer brethren to fend for themselves. And Paul was not very pleased with that. And he said, when you come together, you know, you ought to wait on each other. Basically, I'm just, this is just Alan giving you my little spiel here. Wait on each other, number one. Number two, share what you have. Of course, we don't have too many issues with that today. But I'm trying to set forth here a picture of what genuine New Testament church life was like. 
And in this one specific area here, he's just simply saying that we ought to come in an appropriate, decorous way, with propriety, with sensibleness. And then the counterpoint to that is in, in verse 10. Rather, he's saying then, rather than coming like that and thinking that you're, you know, something, come, come to worship this way. But, and just ignore the parentheses for a moment, but with good works. Because that, in essence, is his answer. Don't come dressed like that. Don't come displaying yourself. And by the way, you remember how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees who gave lofty prayers? See, the counterpoint goes for the men also. Because when we pray, you know, we can get carried on. And sometimes I've heard guys get pretty preachy when they pray. You don't preach when you pray. You pray. So it belongs both ways. And so he's saying this is not the manner in which you come to assemble together for worship, but rather, he says, you come with your good works. And good works are that which are becoming or which becometh women professing godliness. And so when you come to church and if if this is your manner, professing godliness, that is, a close walk with the Lord, a disciple of his, then the way you manifest that is not by the way you dress, but rather with your good works. Then he goes on to talk about the woman learning in silence with all subjection. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, that would be some pretty strong language if Paul didn't give us an explanation in verses 13 and 14 of why this has to be this way, why it is so. Why did he give men the responsibility for teaching and praying and leading in public worship? And by the way, it's just as wrong for men to shrink back from those duties and responsibilities as it is for women to want to put themselves in those positions in public worship, in the life of the church, in other words. Well, he tells us exactly why. Adam was first formed and then Eve. Now, I thought it was interesting to note there, it doesn't say when Adam was created. It says Adam was formed. And it means formed, fashioned, out of the dust of the ground. He was the first. And then Eve was fashioned out of Adam or formed. And so the first thing he says is the reason it's this way in public worship has to do with the order in which God made man and woman. No other reason given except for that. Just the order in which they were were made. But then he adds to that in verse 14. He says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And there's an article there. It's the transgression. 
And that's significant because he's pointing to a specific act that took place. And of course, we know what that transgression was. So let's take a look back here at Genesis chapter 3 for just a moment. And I want to point out something here. Look in Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at verse, verse 6 first. And it says there in verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And then if we look over at verse 16, after God began to seek after Adam and Eve and question them about this whole incident, Look in verse 16. No, that's not the 101, is it? No, sorry about that. 13. Yes, sorry. The Lord said unto the woman in verse 13, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. That is, the serpent deceived me. Now, you remember about the Septuagint? That was a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek about 250 years or so before the time of Jesus. The Septuagint uses the same word deceived over here in 1 Timothy to translate this word over here, beguiled, in Genesis 3.13. So my point simply is, is that Eve was deceived by the serpent it wasn't the man and Paul is simply telling us that's reason number two why we have this setup in church worship public worship in the assembly the ecclesia when God's people come together to assemble for public worship that's why we have this order and then lastly <clears throat> Verse 15, he says, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. The first thing we'll have to notice there is that the word she is singular. She shall be saved in childbearing. And then notice it says, if they. Well, that, and then you got the word saved in there, and that just throws all kinds of havoc into the interpretation of this verse. And I'll give it my best shot, because Mary's sitting over here on pins and needles waiting to hear what I'm going to say. She already told me she was looking forward to that. But as you well know, the word saved... Too often times we use it with the connotation that we typically use it in. That is, a person receives the gospel, they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are, you know, what quote? Saved. But I don't think that's at all what he could possibly be meaning here, because number one, he says, if they continue in faith. This is a person who is already a believer 
they're talking about here continuing in faith. And of course the whole larger context of Paul's letter here has to do with the church and worship, public worship in the church. So I think Paul's talking about that ultimate future salvation that will be accomplished in the context of the larger message of the gospel, what will be accomplished at the judgment seat of Christ and during the millennium. And that is, she shall be saved or preserved in her childbearing if she maintains her proper role, her God-given role. A keeper at home. Somebody who is involved in child rearing. And you'll notice it says, if they continue in the faith and charity. Who are the they? When he switches from she to they shall be saved. Well, some point back to the childbearing thing and say, well, if the children continue in faith and sobriety, she shall be saved in her childbearing. And my wife's back there going, no. <laughs> Already you knew that wasn't the right one, didn't you? That was, I, I don't see that one either. Others point back then to the women. The women as a class of people. Now, of course, over here in the earlier passages, you know, like in verse 9, it says, In like manner also that women. So he's talking there about women as a class of people. And so there are those who would take this back to women as a class of people that in the church, if they maintain their proper role, then they'll be ultimately saved in their childbearing, or that is, achieve the end results of complete full salvation, which is enjoyment of those benefits and blessings in Christ's millennial rule. I thought that for a while, but I don't think that's the right answer either. <laughs> because Paul is talking about men and women both here in this chapter, and he's talking about the proper role of men and the proper role of women. And I think this refers back to they, to the man and to the woman, men and women, that as they fulfill their proper God-given role and they do not shrink back, you know, over that which God has given them, then, and if they continue, the man and the woman continue in faith and in charity or love and holiness Holiness just means separated living. Separated from that world cosmos that we talked about earlier. If the man and the woman live such a life with sobriety or discreetness, then they're both going to be saved. And they're both going to experience the fullness of, of that salvation that he's talking about here for the woman. They will both know the full outcome of the salvation that God has provided for us. And that salvation, we need to always remember, uh, 
and I think we've touched on this in the past, and I know it's been touched on before I ever got here many times by Royce, the broadness and the scope of this word salvation. We use it in a much, much too narrow way. Salvation has to do or being preserved or being delivered or having sound health, which is another context in which it's used most frequently in the Old Testament. It has to do with the whole concept of the whole person and his ultimate deliverance or salvation or preservation for that coming future messianic rule when we will know all of the benefits and blessings of that salvation. It's the whole, in other words, it's the whole kit and caboodle, as we would say it, talking to each other. In a more generic way, or what's the word I want to use there? Everyday language. That's my explanation. So simply put, Paul's telling Timothy, when you get to Ephesus, this is what I want you to tell these people. These men who have gotten the bug to want to teach, and they've delved off into other things, he's saying, get them back on the right path. Tell them to teach the truth, the way of the Old Testament would refer to this as the way of God or God when he was speaking concerning Israel, he would say they have not known my ways. Tur um, man, I just thought of something I was supposed to look up. Yeah, um, <clears throat> let's see here. Let me go back there and find it before I get shooting myself all over the place here and I come up lame. <laughs> I don't want to do that. In verse 2. Let me go back to the men here. Back in verse 8. About lifting up these holy hands that we mentioned last week. I wanted to point something out here. Um, you know, a lot of times when I'm done preaching, when I go to, to move on to the next thing, I get so distracted and I find myself going back to my old message and I find things all over. Man, why didn't I see that? Why didn't I say this? Well, this is one of those things. Psalm 28, verse 2. Get, just keep your finger going here. Psalm 28, verse 2, and then Psalm 63 and verse 4. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think I left out. Oh, oh no, I got, oh, wait a minute, did I? Word, I thought I'd left those down. Okay, got it. Look at verse 20, or chapter 28 of Psalms, verse 2. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry unto thee, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy oracle. Okay? I just turn over to Psalm 63 and verse 4. He says there, thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. 
But look over to Isaiah chapter 1 now. This is just another aspect of something I've mentioned many times in other, other contexts. In, in Isaiah chapter 1, I'll give you a chance to get there, verse 15. Now, you'll, if you look back in the early part of this uh, chapter, you'll notice that the Lord is upset with Israel. Because over in verse 3, he says, The ox knows his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. That is, the ox, when you turn him loose, he'll head back to his own master's crib because he knows where his food is. He knows where his sustenance of life comes from. But Israel, he says, you turn them loose, off they go to idols, to foreign nations. They don't know me. And he's really just, I mean, he's, as we would say it today in our language, he's just ripping into them for the way they've been living and their, their, their rejection of Jehovah. And so when he comes down to verse 15, you'll notice what he says, And when ye spread forth your hands, that is, when you lift up your hands in prayer, he says, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Isaiah's point here concerning his message from the Lord is, and, and you stop and think about this now, he's talking about people who were regularly praying. Going through the motions, lifting up their hands. And remember how we said last week what the implication of that was. That somebody who came to the Lord openly with no agenda, nothing on their heart, nothing they're hiding or holding back. Lord, my life is open before you. And when I pray, I'm praying to you with an open heart. And so the Lord knows then he's saying, the Lord knows when you pray, I know whether you're praying with duplicity or with hypocrisy. And when you come with your hypocrisy like the Israelites were, going through the motions, going down to the temple, going into the courts, even into the inner court, lifting up their hands to that holy oracle, which is the inner sanctuary where God dwelt, praying to God, he said, I'm not hearing your prayers. And I hope that's not the case with us. You know, that we don't get so caught up that I've got to pray. Well, I didn't get my prayer in today. And so we're going to hurry up and rush through something and we just go through the motions. And God's not going to hear. And so when we go back to this issue here in... First Timothy, we've got this same kind of an issue with the men as we do with the women. That's what I'm trying to point out. When he says, in like manner, the women also, he's talking about the, the inner conduct and heart of men and their proper role in the church as opposed to the women and their proper role in the church. It's the same thing. 
Now I want us to look one more time at this word in verse 9, adorn. In like manner also that women adorn themselves. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. And then if you might want to put your finger over in Revelation 21, and then we're going to quit. 1 Peter chapter 3. And I forget what verse. Oh, verses 3 to 5. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Now, of course, here, Peter doing the same thing, talking about (coughs) servants and the men and the ladies. And he says in verse 3, concerning the wives... Whose adorning, that is your outward orderly arrangement, your array, the way you array yourself, let it not be that outward adorning of plating, or Paul, back there it was translated, braiding the hair, and of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible. Wow. The gold, the pearls, the costly clothing, they're all corruptible. He says, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are. Or a better translation there would be, whose daughters ye became, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement or terror. And then likewise... Now he says, likewise, she husbands dwell with them according to knowledge and giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Co-heirs is the literal rendering there. Just like it is back in Revelation 8, or excuse me, in Romans 8, 17. You're heirs of God and heirs of Christ, co-heirs with Christ, if ye suffer with him. The husband and the wife. In order for them to be co-heirs together of the grace of life, that their prayers be not hindered, have certain specific manners of conduct. Look over then with me, if you would, at Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. Notice this last thing. In verse 1, John says there, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the New Jerusalem prepared as a bride adorned for her her husband. A bride, boy, 
I've never been in the powder room when they were getting that bride together and don't want to be. But you know, they give a lot of care to be sure that she is properly arrayed, orderly dressed, in other words. Her cosmos is correct before she steps out of that room to walk down that aisle and for the bride to be presented. And that's what he's saying here regarding this city, the new Jerusalem. After the millennium is over and this new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, he said the way in which it's looked, and of course there are detailed description given to us here of all the kinds of precious stones and jewels that make up the new Jerusalem. And he says it looks like a bride adorned for her husband. So what is Paul trying to tell us and what is he trying to instruct Timothy in? Simply that in church life, and when we say church life, when God's people come together, when they meet, there's a, and, and they're meeting for public worship. We're not talking about a picnic at the lake. We're talking about for public worship. There's a proper way to carry yourself and a proper way to conduct ourselves. And there is a role, a responsibility that God has given to men and to women. And we must equally fulfill our God-given role to shrink back from that and to not do it puts us in jeopardy regarding our future salvation. Let's pray. Father, indeed we now want to give praise and thanksgiving to you for your word, for the awe and the marvel and the wonder of that which you have laid out before us concerning your plan for man and why you brought us here. And that if we are to be those future rulers that you have created us and formed us to be. And I pray that we'll take to heart these things and that we'll know the grace of God and the power of God to practice these things. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, and we'll give you an opportunity to come. Oh, I wish you knew how hard that is to preach that. Man. Boom, that hits me right there. If you want to come this morning, we want to give you an opportunity to do that.